Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Friday this week at 10.30 a.m. on February 9th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Alice Alstein, Talking Points Memo. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Hello. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. Where it already feels well into the day, doesn't it, after that 5 a.m. budget vote? <laughs> it does. Uh, and today we also have an interview with former Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Administrator Andy Slavitt, who's just launched a new bipartisan organization aimed at expanding health coverage. But first, another quiet week on the health beat, not. Uh, let us start with the budget, as Joanne just said, a 5 a.m. vote in the House after a somewhat delayed vote last night in the Senate. But uh, the... It was 528. Was that, was, <laughs> it was something I, like that. But the, the government, actually, the government technically did shut down for some, like eight and a half hours because the president didn't sign this, la- this next short-term bill uh, until 8.30 this morning. Um, but while Congress hasn't addressed the immigration issue yet that's been holding up these spending bills, Democrats and Republicans did manage to negotiate a compromise spending plan for this year and next, basically enough to get through the midterm elections. And there was an awful lot of health care in that package. So who wants, who wants to start us off? Politically, it was interesting because basically Democrats got everything that they wanted except immigration. So they were in this squeeze where they kept saying over and over that we don't want to shut down the government over immigration. That was sort of the line that they got tagged with before that was damaging politically. And so they were in a tight spot. And even though Nancy Pelosi the hashtag gave was no her... dreamers, no deal. Was right, that the... yeah. right, right, right. And whereas it was the Senate Democrats last time pulling the trigger, this time pressure was on the House. Rand Paul did his little delay thing, but that, that yeah, was... that basically uh, angered him, made him unpopular with the 99 other members of the Senate last night. Yes, because they could have voted hours earlier. Um, but uh, yes, so the Democrats were very happy about all of the other spending they got in terms of CHIP, extending it for 10 years, in terms of community health centers, funding for two years, um, in terms of opioid funding, which far short of the amount of opioid funding they would have gotten in the repeal bill last year, but still better than nothing, um, and a, a host of other spending things, more money for NIH, et cetera. So they felt like they really had to vote for it. And and a fair number of them did. And many did, more than 70 in the yeah. House. Yes. Now, there were some ahead, health Margo. things that I think the Democrats were less excited about. So two kind of little whacks at the Affordable Care Act. One was that the bill did away with the IPAB program, which was this sort of controversial and largely hypothetical board that the, was... The Independent Payment Advisory the Board. Independent Payment Advisory Board. And R. the R. idea P. of this board was that if Medicare spending per person rose by too much, then this board would be activated. And it was supposed to be sort of uh, an expert board that was going to make recommendations about how to save money to Congress. And unless Congress overrode its recommendations by a supermajority vote, those changes would just become part 
of Medicare. And I think it was unpopular for two reasons. Republicans like to criticize it as being sort of potentially a rationing board. It was even sometimes called a death panel uh, because the idea was that it would have the power to take away payment or substantially reduce payment for certain kinds of services that might Although make them it, harder to get. Although it, yeah. we, we don't know if they... No, no. By law, it, by law, they were not. it was not allowed to raise payments for beneficiaries. Um, no, no, there were a lot of restrictions on what it could do. But I think, you know, there was a view that they could kind of fuss with the payments in ways that would uh, make certain kinds of treatments harder to access. Uh, and it was also, I think, disliked by some Democrats even because it really was taking power away from Congress to make the, these policies about where Medicare should spend money and uh, giving it to these experts. Anyway, no one had ever been appointed to the board. The Medicare pay, uh, the Medicare spending rate had never gotten high enough that it was ever activated. But it has been this kind of uh, longstanding political fight about IPAB. So no more. That's gone. Yes, it's been a po- Republicans will be sorry to lose this political cudgel that they've had since 2010. The Democrats were very split about it. It's not like all the Democrats love this thing. They the House not. hated it. Yeah, it was something House, that was, was put in by the Senate. The Senate yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there also was another cut to the public health and prevention fund. So this was funding in the Affordable Care Act uh, that was sort of administered through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that was just supposed to go to states and municipalities to help them do things to prevent people from getting sick. And, like uh, flu shots. Yes. And over time, because of other changes in spending, that fund has actually come to backfill a lot of things that the CDC usually did through its normal budget allocation. It's and so, like 20 percent of the CDC's budget. So, you know, those cuts, those cuts are uh, substantial. Although there, it, one of the, the sort of ironic things about all of this is that there were two things in this budget deal, and we should sort of point out that this is not technically the budget yet. They actually did the budget before they did the tax bill. But these are not even, this is not the big spending bills. They now have six weeks to basically go write all this deal into spending bills and do them by the end of March. But two things that they, they got into this deal, that Republicans got into this deal, the, the cut to the prevention fund and uh, some small increases in Medicare premiums for very wealthy people. Those were the things that Republicans had wanted to use last and year chip. to pay for CHIP. <laughs> so what's the justification now that they... That chip doesn't need to be paid for. Right. Well, the, the, just, the justification is that there are other things to do. I well, mean, it's $6 billion for opioids. I mean, some of the Democrats had wanted $25 billion, but $6 billion, it's, it's not well, jump there change. Wasn't there $45 billion in the repeal bill? That was for uh, that was for other things. Not stri- it, it could States could use it for opioids, but it wasn't. And it was also over. That was over 10, I believe. Yes. And this was over two. This is over yeah. two. Right. I mean, it, there's, there are people who say $6 billion isn't enough, but $6 billion is a lot more than $0 billion. Yes. Um, and the NIH got $2 billion more. Um, which is bipartisan, and they've been, you know, after a lot of years of not great funding, that's been a trend the last few years. Of t- Actually, repealing IPAB is the most expensive thing in the health section. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody had tweeted that it, it would that it was in there as a pay for as one of the savers. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's uh, it, it it is many many billions of dollars because IPAB was supposed to cut payments for for to Medicare There's providers. A, some of this stuff is sort of weedsy, but it's worth noting there actually was quite a lot of health policy in this bill too, like lots of little tweaks to Medicare programs to the way the ACOs work, to, you know, just just a lot of... I, I was sort of surprised uh, as this last-minute deal comes together that you suddenly see all a this lot of really substantive Medicare policy that was 
kind of ready to go and looking for a, a place to Well, that's the thing. Tra- traditionally, there's a year-end some kind of health bill that these sorts of tweaks go into. Um, and there really hasn't been one since MACRA in 2015, which was the big, actually, it was the last time that uh, the CHIP got renewed in community health centers. And uh, and they, they, they did the, the doc fix. And that was the last time that all these sort of Medicare, they call them Medicare extenders, were actually had a vehicle to ride on. Although, but there were, the Medicare I, extenders were there, but then there were a lot there of were more than the extenders. Yeah, yeah, it was not was just the extenders. Policy. There was, there, there was, was lots say. of technical language that none of us are going to try to explain about ACOs. There was a lot about telemedicine, a whole lot of new yeah, opportunities Medicare, to use Medicare tele- Advantage plans now can use telemedicine in a way that they couldn't before. One thing I thought was interesting, they said that uh, accountable care organizations would now be allowed to give cash to uh, their patients who did certain things. They felt that just getting rid of co-payments wasn't enough of an incentive for certain behaviors that the ACOs might want to encourage. So there's, I mean, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll all write stories about these things, yes, but we'll there's have, a lot we'll in there. weeks there's of rural, stories There were here. rural health provisions. There are things like a physician assistants can uh, serve as, as in place of a physician in hospice, which is really important in rural areas. There was like, you know, 25 pages of very dense lists of things that, you know, <laughs> will take us a while to break down. But it was a significant piece of health legislation. And the um, uh, health volunteer core programs for Right. And, and chips. It's mm-hmm. like four. You know, we went from, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't, first they couldn't do two years and then they couldn't do five years and then they finally succeeded in doing six years and then, cool, we have 10 years. So I don't know what we'll have by March. Well, of course, <laughs> well, of course they did, they did the, they added the additional four years to chip because it gave the money to play with. Right, it actually, but it's 10 years of chip. Yeah, now. but, but yes, but chip is now, uh, is now settled for 10 years. So I'm sure we will spend many, many uh, discussions in the future talking about the little things that, that we haven't actually uncovered yet in this bill, but there is a lot to uncovering this bill. Meanwhile, um, on Monday, uh, the president's budget comes out, which is kind of after the fact here, since they've basically just agreed on funding for uh, for fiscal 2019. But we will see the president's budget. And apparently, or so we hear, there's going to be something about drug prices in the president's budget. What, what do we know? Well, we don't. It, it just came out last night, and it was um, a, a small amount of information um, given to his few media outlets, the new secretary, HHS secretary Alex Azar, uh, spoke to a few people. Um, there are five, remember that he the, the the criticism of Azar is that he although he worked at HHS in the past, the most of the last ten years or so, he had been a drug executive. That's what people were um, criticizing him for. That's what the Democrats were saying they were worried about. The president has been saying for more than a year, you know the. Since his, since the transition that he was going to you know get these drug prices down and he hasn't done anything well it looks like there will be some proposals next week it's not yet there, there are some of them are fairly technical about letting consumers have rebates instead of just insurance plans it looks like there's going to be an attempt to let five states negotiate Medicaid prices differently using a formula which is different than how they do it now there looks like there's some new definitions that lay people wouldn't really want to <laughs> try to understand um, about generics and some over the counter drugs and how they're paid for. Basically trying to make um, both not just the out-of-pocket cost for consumers, but actually the price of drugs somewhat lower. It's not um, It's not totally crystal clear to me exactly what this is going to look like, how much needs Congress, how much can be regulatory. Um, yeah, or that, was, how much, that was my big question. Or how, how much, much of this can they do themselves and how much do they need Congress to do? Well, some of it I think they could probably do through CMMI. And then the, you know, very, you know, the, the Obama administration, one of the last things they did is give up on a proposal to change how Medicare Part B pays for drugs. Those are the drugs that the doctor or a 
healthcare provider administers to you in a healthcare setting. It's not something you go home. It's not a pill you take home. It's usually an infusion or something like that. And they're um, they're very expensive. The Obama administration had tried to change how they were paid for. Um, it was it was there was a lot of controversy. They pulled it before they left office. There was an enormous amount of pushback. Well, right, a lot of the Democrats wanted it studied too. They, you know, the, the Republicans wanted. If I remember correctly, it was a year ago. The Republicans wanted it killed, and the Democrats wanted it analyzed. Um, the, it, but it looks like they're they're talking about doing something quite similar, although on a limit more limited number of drugs, trying this on new drugs. But it would make them uh, cheaper for Medicare. I mean, I think that one of the, the one of the interesting things to watch with Alex Azar is, yes, he's been a drug executive. He's also a conservative who is now head of HHS. And until like yesterday, Republicans were against deficits. So, I mean, he, one of his jobs is also to sort of deal with Medicare and Medicaid spending. And drug prices are part of that. And in different jobs, we have different imperatives. And maybe he will, you know, let's see. I don't know what he's going to do. But there's a clear signal here that there's going to be a focus on drugs, whether it lasts more than two hours on Monday morning, I don't know yet. Yeah, I mean, we, we you know, Alice, uh, there were a bunch of hearings just this week about uh, drug prices again, and we, everybody keeps talking about drug prices. Just that everybody's been talking about drug prices for a very long time. We haven't seen anything and, happen. And Azar himself is going to be making the rounds next week. Um, that's right, because that's what happens hearings. when the budget comes yes, out. That's yes. right. So uh, lawmakers will have plenty of opportunities to ask him if he's if he's serious and what's what this is actually going to mean. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me about the set of proposals that's been described in these articles this morning, and I'm sure we'll get more detail, is just, you know, like there's very, very little new under the sun. You know, it's interesting to see the same proposal for these uh, drugs that doctors give. You know, this is the it looks like it's the exact same proposal that Obama had in many of his budgets. Um, so, you know, like we'll see, like maybe it'll fly differently uh, now that it's a Republican administration that's proposing it. But, you know, the last time it came around, it was it managed to offend uh, both hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and doctors. So it was sort of like the rare trifecta. But there's actually we should talk it was about, impressively we should talk unpopular. about this policy in the future because I actually think that it's quite interesting uh, and that the current policy does, I think, even though it makes all those groups happy. Uh, it does so because it leads to some relatively perverse incentives. Right. And these drugs, these cancer drugs in particular, some of them are really, 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 really expensive. And they're expensive for both the patient and they're expensive for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars expensive. We're not talking like hundreds. We're talking tens of thousands. Per month. Yeah. Or, and, and the, some cases. Some yeah. cases. And um, certainly over 100000 a year, it's not uncommon. So, and I think that, you know, anyone who's already it's really an emotional issue, you know, when you see somebody dealing with a disease as serious as that, and then they're dealing with how on earth do they pay for these drugs. Anyone who watches anybody going through that, and I think everybody has, it's not a partisan issue. It's just tragic, right? You know, it's just people really struggling to pay for something that might keep them alive. And yet, you know, comes the question, why on earth are they so expensive? Which opens a whole nother can of worms that I'm sure we will talk about, but not today because we have too much news. Um, also this week, we got final numbers for enrollment under the Affordable Care Act. And despite cuts to outreach, enrollment help and a sign-up period only half as long in most of the states, enrollment was 96% of what it was last year. What do we make of that? I think the thing to keep our eye on is the variation between the states. So overall, enrollment looks 
approximately the same as it did last year. And I think relative to some of the concerns about the sky falling, that is good news. But I also think that we're seeing differences between the states really open up. The states that ran their own exchanges, that expanded Medicaid, that invested in outreach, and that are committed to making the Affordable Care Act work had great year in terms of enrollment. Record years, some of them. Yeah. And yeah, the California. And a lot of the states that didn't, that were relying on the federal government to do this work for them, that have resisted the law, that have not expanded Medicaid, you know, those are places where enrollment is lower. And those are also places where we've seen kind of higher prices and less competition in many cases. And as more policies uh, roll out over this year with, you know, potentially association health plans, it looks like short-term health plans are going to come out, the individual mandate is going to go away in the future, uh, we may see kind of a widening gulf between the sort of haves and have-nots on this stuff. What do you think about enrollment? Well, I, I think that... Um I mean, I think people were surprised that, you know, the, the lack – there was this perverse thing, though, because the administration wasn't doing outreach. But we were all writing about, oh, look, they're not doing outreach and the, the enrollment period is short. So what had been sort of a routine story, enrollment didn't get as much ink the last couple of years. It actually got a lot of attention. We were writing about the lack of outreach. We were writing about the attempts to undermine. We were writing about the short enrollment period, the six weeks. Um, so in some ways um, – they, they got only, a lot of free media. They got a lot of free media when they were, you know, all the all those stories. Now, I also think that, you know, for all the problems with the Affordable Care Act, and we have written about them and talked about them at length, this is not a perfect program. But the fact that people are signing up does, in fact, show that it is meeting a need for, for you know, millions of people in this country. So, and it, it did not, it did not implode. It It is hurt, but it did not implode. It exists. I think we have to watch the, you know, there's always some attrition. You have people sign up and don't pay. I, I think we have to watch and see if that's bigger than usual this year because there's confusion about when does the mandate go away? You know, did it go away? Is it 2018, 2017, 2019? For those of you listening, it is 2019. Um, yes, it's still in effect this year. Right, but I mean, there could be um, there could be more attrition than usual, and, and, and the administration is also allowing these other kinds of noncompliant plans, skimpier plans, and I'm not exactly sure when they're going to get up or how fast, but that also could be people switching to those. There's also, we can't see in these numbers the part of the individual market that's not in the Affordable Care Act exchanges. So nationally, about half of people who buy their own insurance are not buying through the exchange. They're buying what's called off-exchange, either directly from an insurance company or maybe through a broker or an online exchange that's different than the government one. And those people don't get government subsidies. And they are facing, for the second year in a row, really substantial increases in the price of insurance, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, 25, 50 percent higher than it was before. And it is possible that signups among those people have fallen off much more sharply. And we just don't see it because that data is not captured by Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I, I think the other thing that we don't know is how many, how much of this sort of unexpectedly high enrollment was due to people who were getting either free or heavily discounted plans because of the quirk and how the premiums ended up getting distributed when the president cut off the, the subsidies for, for lower the cost-sharing subsidies for lower-income people, and they ended up loading all of that money onto the silver, you know, premiums. But that had the the sort of the odd impact of making bronze plans free for a lot of people. So uh, who knows how much attrition there'll be among people who are getting plans for free or for five bucks a month. Right. And um, the affordability of the plans was one of the main messages of the advocacy groups that mobilized and tried to fill the gap in outreach and advertising that the federal government sort of abandoned this year. So, Joanne, 
you just mentioned that the uh, the mandate goes away next year in 2019. Um, we have a listener question about that. It's from Suzanne Story from St. Augustine, Florida. She wants to know what's the potential for insurers to charge a lapse in coverage penalty to individuals who go without coverage and then try to re-enter the market. There was some conversation about this during the whole repeal effort last summer, um, but I, I think it, it's obviously back as states talk about amongst themselves about what they're going to do when the mandate goes away if they're otherwise worried about only sick people signing up. So the answer to this question, I think, is actually relatively easy, which is to say that current law forbids this. Uh, The Affordable Care Act says that you can only charge different prices to people based on their age and where they live, and in some states based on whether or not someone smokes. But insurance companies are not allowed to charge a higher price to someone who has failed to buy insurance in the past than someone who has remained continuously insured. And doing away with that would require a change in law. Although we do have Idaho insisting that it's just going to go ahead and... and flout some of the federal rules. I mean, I suppose that it is plausible that some state might try to do this and there would be no enforcement of federal law. But then you would imagine that people who are subject to these higher premiums would sue and that the courts would fine for them. I think I think this would be hard to achieve under, uh, current, law. under current law just through state action alone. It is, I suppose, theoretically possible that a state might apply for one of these innovation waivers and uh, 1332 waivers, a 1332 right. waiver and get approval from the Trump administration to test something like this out. But I think even that would be pretty hard to achieve under current law. Right. And they're they're talking again about um, various stabilization measures in the Senate, Um, restoring the CSRs or doing something about the cost-sharing subsidies, as well as some kind of um, risk pool uh, reinsurance bill. I mean, none of us think this is like on track again, but it's less dead can you be less dead than you were a week yes, ago? I yes, think, I think it's less dead than it's it less was. Dead. Um, more and, alive, and, more right. alive. <laughs> less dead. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, could something, could there be some kind of language creating greater state flexibility in that less dead bill um, if it becomes more alive or some other legislation later this year letting states do something? I mean, we just don't know. There are a lot of things in flux about what the market's going to look like in 2019. I mean, we're not through 2018. so It's still February. It, yes, it just doesn't feel like and, that And, you today. know, as we, as we learned this week, Congress uh, can pass a lot of policy very quickly. Right. So, so could, I mean, could, could we be in a situation where states were given a number of tools to address stability? Um, the, 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 can states do things instead of the mandate? Could we see some kind of state flexibility door opened through either waivers or legislation? Yes. Do we think it's going to happen in the next, you know, easy snap of the fingers? No. All right. Before we get to our interview, I want to talk briefly about a story that Margot wrote last week, which follows on our discussion about Medicaid work requirements that some states are starting. Um, stories about the origin of the term able-bodied, um, which is, of course, what, what most of the Republicans are using to say we want able-bodied people on Medicaid to work. And uh, I've, I've been taken to task for using that phrase. And Margot, you found out why it's so controversial. It was fascinating. So, you know, I just it, when I first came to Washington, I started hearing it and I feel like I'm hearing it more and more. And so I thought, like, where does this come from? What is it? first time I heard it? I thought, what does this mean? What is able bodied? That's not a word that I know in my normal life. And I kept having to ask people, what are you who are you describing when you say that? Anyway, it turns out that this phrase able bodied dates back to 
the 16th century and was codified into law in England in 1601, the 1601 Poor Law, which was sort of the first uh, English law that provided assistance for the poor, differentiated between what the uh, lawmakers at the time called the impotent poor, so those were people who were unable to take care of themselves, and the able-bodied poor who were seen as capable of work. And if you were in the impotent poor category, then you just got assistance. They would give you food. They would give you housing. If you were able-bodied poor, they would put you in a workhouse and give you work in exchange for whatever kind of government assistance you got. And that basic dichotomy has stayed with us, you know, across the Atlantic and through all these centuries, that there is an idea that some people in the poor are deserving of our aid without a lot of conditions attached, whereas other people on the basis of their ability uh, – you know, maybe should have to do something in order to get their benefits. But what's interesting to me is that able-bodied is not a technical term. It doesn't refer to a particular set of characteristics of a person. You know, are there certain t- physical tests of your body that determine whether you're able-bodied or not? No, it really is a political term. And over time, as the economy has changed and as our standards of who should and shouldn't receive aid have changed, the definition of able-bodied has changed. And uh, someone on Twitter uh, sent this lovely note to me uh, that really made me think, which is that as more and more of our work becomes less and less physical, that perhaps we're going to have to start thinking thinking about the able-minded in the future. I, I, I love that. I thought it was a really great piece. I liked it a lot. It was really, like, we, we don't get many health articles that go back to, like, Elizabethan England. <laughs> <laughs> and very timely, since this is becoming an issue not just for Medicaid, but for public housing and uh, food stamps and just every, every single aspect of government um, assistance right now. Yeah, and also because we have been working, I mean, through technology and public policy, we've been working on ways of uh, and, and the ADA. I mean, we were trying to get people who um, are, to use another term that sometimes people don't like, disabled, not you know, recognizably, you know, you there is something that is a better. We're trying to get them in the workforce, and um, without losing benefits. I mean, there there there's various things that have been going on in the last twenty five or thirty years. So, you know. There's this, there's all these weird things colliding with who has to work and how do you define it and you know somebody who's who has a disability can still work and some people who aren't technically disabled you can just like your common sense can look at them and say they're going to have trouble working and and you were saying you know more and more as a society our work is becoming less physical but that's not true in all areas for sure I was just going to say um, that and so uh, you know here here in Washington DC maybe you know there's a lot of desk jobs and uh, non-physical labor but not not in a lot of places where people live yeah, but heard- I do think if you think about these historical categories as as Joanne says you know our current law for example if you're blind uh, generally, you are you are not considered to be able-bodied. You are con- you are considered to have a serious disability. You know the technology that for blind people has uh, improved tremendously. You know we, we have, have colleagues we who ha- are blind, right? Yeah, and we they have- could not have done this kind of the work that we do without the technology that has enabled it. But you know we know some terrific. We we all know yeah. one really terrific healthcare yeah. reporter, right? <laughs> but you know maybe someone who has a mental health problem, for example. Um, that you know that person doesn't fit into one of these historical categories of what it is to not have an able body but that person actually might have uh, more substantial difficulty working 
And then, of course, there's the people with opioid issues who can't pass drug tests, but we will. That, that's yet another separate category. Um, I think we're going to stop now and play my interview with Andy Slavitt. We taped this on Wednesday, so after the budget deal was announced, but before it passed. Uh, and one more disclaimer, Kaiser Family Foundation President and CEO Drew Altman is on the new group's Council of Advisors. Kaiser Health News is an editorially independent program of the foundation, so we talk to who we want to about what we want to. So here's the interview. We are pleased to have in our studio Andy Slavitt. Andy is the former acting head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which oversees not just Medicare and Medicaid for the federal government, but the Affordable Care Act, too. Last summer, Andy helped lead the resistance to Republican efforts to repeal and replace the health law, but people who only know him from that may not realize he has deep roots in the health industry. And this week, he announced the creation of the United States of Care, a new effort to, in the words of the organization's press release, quote, ensure that every single American has access to quality, affordable health care, regardless of health status, social need, or income. Andy, welcome, and thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you've got a pretty politically diverse board of directors and an even more diverse council of advisors. Why do you think there's room for another bipartisan effort, particularly in such politically polarized times? Well, let's start with what we're trying to do here. I think what we're trying to do is not change the politics of the moment. I think it would be a fool's errand to suggest that we could somehow magically change the political climate in Washington. But what we do have to do, and what I think we all have a rooting interest in doing, is over the long term, what we might call the next healthcare policy debate, because we do have these at least once a decade, uh, put in place some of the ingredients so that we can have a debate where the American public gets what we want and what we deserve out of that debate. And I think you know, what that means really is uh, moving to where the rest of the world is so that every American can have access to a regular source of care, uh, making sure that people don't go bankrupt uh, from a medical bill or expense again. And then finally, um, answering the question once and for all by creating lasting policy. I don't think anybody wants to live through the last several years where, you know, we've passed a law one side works for it, the other side works uh, hard against it or even to sabotage it, but rather to move to a place where we can take what is, I think, a very strong public sentiment and use that to influence the outcome. And we want to start now and put in place the building blocks so that we can inform the debate that may happen sometime over the next decade. Do you have sort of short-term goals and longer-term goals, or is it all longer-term goal? Yeah. Well, look, I think in the short term, what, what you can do are, I think, two very important things. One is that um, to really galvanize public opinion and build that public opinion that right now is a lot of fear, fear of losing um, what they have, fear that something's going to be changed, fear that, that, that someone's family is not going to be able to get taken care of. Uh, and, and so the, really kind of the work at the grassroots level uh, to make sure that, we, that, that that's understood and that's built and that gets turned into a positive political moment as has happened with other things like marriage equality and the others. And the second is I think it would be a really good idea to do work in states where we can create precursor models to what could eventually be good long-term solutions. I think the last thing anybody wants is some think tank's version of, uh, of a nirvana healthcare system that hasn't had uh, the evidence behind it, hasn't had the light of day behind it. So I think going out and building and supporting the building of a, a number of different models that bring more coverage to more people uh, that, that do move in this direction. And they don't all have to be huge things, Julie. They can be, they can be things that address 
point in time needs, like how do we care for people with who with the opioid disorders better, or how do we take some of the great new technologies that are coming on the market to uh, cure childhood leukemia, as CAR-T does, but are very expensive? How do we find ways of covering those things and using those as building blocks to get to a better place? In theory, states already have the ability to do that under the Affordable Care Act. Well, states have the ability to do a lot of things, but to do them well, um, I think it takes a much higher level of involvement of the public. Uh, It takes bringing some of the key people to the table. It takes supporting legislators and governors, and whether it's a ballot initiative or a a waiver or or a piece of legislation, so that it gets done right, it gets done well. Uh, And I think there's real opportunity there. I've seen it in, we've seen it recently in Nevada, we've seen it in Minnesota, we've seen it in, and we put out a paper about a number of states that have tried to put efforts out there, but for one reason or another, uh, haven't succeeded. And we think we can potentially help that. I want to go back to sort of the people who you've gotten involved in this, which is, as I said, extremely diverse, Republicans, Democrats, people from the health industry, sort of more more advocacy type people. We've seen these sort of strange bedfellows coalitions before. And one of the problems is that they always end up going for the least common denominator. How, how do you avoid having that happen? Exactly. Well, look, uh, I, you know, this isn't a convening organization. I mean, I, I'm part of several of them. I think they serve a great purpose. Uh, they show that you can have dialogue. But but the idea wasn't to bring a bunch of people together and force agreement. Uh, the In fact, the idea was to bring together people who actually have fairly irreconcilable views. There are people who are strong believers in single payer. There are people who are uh, strong believers in more market-based uh, solutions. But all of them are, are essentially believers that we need to uh, move to a place where we are supporting what the public wants, that we're expanding coverage, and most importantly, that we get out of the rut we're in right now where it seems like, left to our own devices, we're going to be going through a prolonged period where whoever's in power um, may try to get just enough votes to force the will of their policies on the other party and then have at risk of having it overturned uh, right away. And so this isn't uh, to, to diminish any particular policy. It's to say that this is an environment that isn't conducive to great policymaking. And I think a number of Americans have come together in some sense symbolically to say this is not where we need to be. And in other senses, some of the people who are on the Founders Council who you may not have heard of, in many ways, they're some of the most interesting people because they're the people that have been fighting this battle in very quiet and important and personal ways and who really have a stake in the outcome and want to make progress. So sitting around and talking is not the objective. Uh, That's important. We should get the best ideas. There's academic partnerships with the Leonard Davis Institute. That's all great. We need more new good ideas. But what we really need to do is get out into the real world, into the states, and test these ideas and, and start making progress for people. I think one of the things that I learned last year uh, in sort of the, the big fight was sort of the, the power of education, that people really didn't know a lot about how the even even, you know, what, seven years in, how the Affordable Care Act was supposed to work, how it worked, what the Medicaid program was. Um, what was your biggest takeaway from sort of last summer? Oh, I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, it is um, uh, such an inner circle, an inner world, and it comes across to the real world as people trying to do something to them. And so, you know, what I found when I went and did town halls around the country last year was if you actually stop talking in Washington language and start listening to people about the issues they care about, 
there's a lot of commonality. Can I afford my prescription? Um, can I leave my job and still have my health insurance for my kids so they can continue to play sports at school? You know, can I uh, afford a high deductible? Can I? Um, uh, I have a mental illness. Can I make sure that I have some kind of maintenance because I can't work with without that? Those are fundamental things that the American public says. And when they understand that when that's translated, that means that they want a safety net, and and that's what Medicaid does, and that people who have, for example, children with disabilities need that safety net in order to stay in the middle class, they, they, there was a lot of learning. And I think what we all saw was things like the Medicaid program had vast amount more support than I think anybody ever knew once people started to get invested in what it did and once people got better at explaining some of the things the Medicaid program does. Now you hear every day people telling you, oh, Medicaid program takes care of half the births in the country, half people in nursing homes, 40 percent of people of the money goes to people with disabilities. People get that now. That's more in the nomenclature. And that's a good thing. And is that how you want to proceed? I mean, are you is is, is this going to be fundamentally an education effort? Or I mean, you said clearly with 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 your sort of diversity, you're not going to be a lobbying organization. No, exactly. We it has to, first of all, there's a lot to to learn and a lot to 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 be learned from all of this. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of focus groups, a lot of listening sessions, uh, a lot of trying to understand what the real fundamental issues are and how they move uh, the needle. And then to try to close that gulf that exists between um, that kind of fast-paced policy talk that happens here in D.C. or even in the state capitol and how it relates to, to people so they know what to stand up and fight for, to know what to advocate for, and to understand um, when things impact them. Because the thing that exacerbates all of these problems is people feel that the political process is broken. They feel like their congressperson isn't necessarily interested in their health care issues. Yet, all of us have had that experience of being in the hospital while a loved one's been having surgery or while we've been waiting for a diagnosis, and we know that that's the common bond. And we need to get back to that common bond and try to push past all of uh, this division. And again, that's the long-term game. That's not the short-term game. But for us to really make progress as a country, we have to find our way back there. What's the biggest threat sort of in... 2018 to healthcare. Well, I think 2018 uh, feels like it's more of a death by a thousand cuts threat than an existential threat. And uh, you know, last year, which which I think people who were advocating to keep people covered would say was more successful than they thought it would be. We have to remember, still, in all three million people lost access to healthcare coverage, and so we could go through this year and. Through the thousands of cuts, we could see five, six, seven million more people lose access to coverage, which, by the way, would cut about half of the gains made over the last seven years. And how might that happen? That'll happen uh, largely by making the Medicaid program uh, more challenging for people to enroll in uh, in a number of states. It it can happen in in a number of different ways um, that can be done, not necessarily through Congress. So I think uh, people should be paying attention over the next year to those issues. I don't think the organization that we've been talking about, that's their that's not their game. Uh, but I think that's where I will certainly be paying attention. Last question. As we're taping this, uh, Congress is just announcing a bipartisan two-year budget deal with a, a lot more money for a lot of health programs. Is this some kind of fundamental dam breaking or do you think this is just a one-off? Oh, I don't think we've seen any dams breaking. Uh, I'll be pleased, as, as as many will, if we 
um, can show that we can make some progress. Uh, I think there's um, still far more that divides us, sadly. Uh, there are plenty of common sense things we could do in the healthcare arena, per se, let alone in immigration and otherwise. That candidly, most people agree with. Most Americans agree with. I suspect most people in Congress agree with. Yet we still haven't found our way there on these issues. And I think that's uh, the kind of thing that's going to take some time for us to figure out how to chill. Because until we fix our political process, I think it's going to be harder to fix our health care system. Great. Thank you. Andy Slavitt. Thank you. Okay, we are back. We're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently. They think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Who wants to start, Joanne? Uh, Last week, when I was not on the podcast, um, you, my colleagues, talked a lot about the right to try law. Um, And one of my colleagues, uh, Sarah Carlin-Smith, has written um, a really good deep piece Trump's controversial new health care idea. It's actually not his idea, but he started touting it last week, including the State of the Union. This is the idea of um, letting doctors and patients get access to unapproved drugs for dying patients or patients with other incurable progressive diseases. And should it go through the FDA or is there a, quote, right to try outside the FDA? It's a good, really deep piece on this. Margo. So last week, Amazon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Berkshire Hathaway announced that they want to get together and solve healthcare uh, as a project for their employees. Um, and I love the way you put that. <laughs> there was a lot of froth about this idea. The markets moved. Um, there was tons of excitement. There was tons of great sort of cable news. And we uh, all wrote enthusiasm. about it. We all wrote about it. And I think all of us wrote about it in a more skeptical way. And I wanted to recommend a piece from Uh, the Harvard Business Review from a professor at Harvard named Robert Huckman, who did some hard thinking about what are some possible things that Amazon has particular skills in that could be opportunities for improving the healthcare experience. And if you read them, they seem pretty nifty and like maybe this could be cool. Uh, They don't seem like they're going to make a huge difference in the overall cost of care for those people. But I think if you want to read something that is thoughtful and smart and optimistic about this deal um, and a little bit less uh, sort of frothy, uh, I recommend this piece. Okay. Alice? Um, I wanted to recommend a great piece in the New York Times by Andrew Jacobs. You know, we we talk on the podcast a lot about what other countries are doing on healthcare, and I think this is a great example of what other countries are doing for public health, but not necessarily in the healthcare treatment space. This is about nutrition, and it's about uh, the country Chile rolling out an incredibly aggressive program to combat uh, obesity, especially childhood obesity, going after high sugary products and regulating them almost as much as tobacco products, including visually striking labels for high sugar products, uh, banning the use of animal mascots to help market to kids. No more Tony the Tiger. No more Tonio el Tigre. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're riquisimas. Um, But uh, um, and uh, banning a lot of advertising uh, during certain hours that kids are watching TV for sugary products, banning the little Kinder Sorpresa eggs that have the little toy inside. And all of these companies, of course, as you would expect, are suing to try to stop (laughs) these laws from taking effect and arguing that, you know, there's no proof that this is working. Of course, the government is responding that it would take years and years to see the true effects of this. And so I think it 
will be an incredibly fascinating experiment to watch. The country is really dealing with a very severe obesity epidemic, and it'll be interesting to see what, what happens with this. People people keep trying, and, and, and industry keeps sort of thwarting them. Uh, my story this week is from one of our fellow podcasters, Sarah Cliff at Vox. Uh, it's called Why a Simple Life-Saving Rabies Shot Can Cost $10,000 in America. And this is an offshoot of the project that Sarah's been doing where she's collecting emergency room bills. She discovered that some of the highest emergency room bills that people have been sending her have been people who have been exposed to rabies um, and needed to go get a rabies. And there's there's a there's a sort of immediate uh, immunoglobulin, and that's the one that that's very expensive. The rabies vaccine itself, not so much. But it turns out that this is a, a, a medication that um, expires. So most the basically the only place it's stocked regularly is in an emergency room. So you pretty much have to go to the emergency room to get this. And because of that, they add on all these facility fees and all these other things. And it's just, it's sort of, uh, you know, absurd the way it, it costs. And, and the, the Maybe price this is, is a problem that Amazon can solve yeah. by drop shipping immunoglobulin to your doctor. Perhaps. <laughs> there you go. Freezer at Whole Foods. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, apparently it only keeps a year or two. So, you know, you know, and there was, there was one woman who, you know, who tried to go to the public health department. They said, no, you have to go to the emergency room. And, you know, these are, everybody has high deductibles these days. And even if you don't have a high deductible, you have a copay. And, you know, yeah, even if you have insurance, you end up paying thousands of dollars. So basically stay away from bats and raccoons and foxes. Yeah, but <laughs> you can't make them stay them. away from you. Yes, that's true. <laughs> it's, it, it's yet another example of... Um, Prices are wacky in the United States. So just as an aside, uh, Sarah said on Twitter that she has, since publishing this article, has been hearing from all sorts of people who have encountered bats in lots of hilarious ways, which I sort of want that email correspondence to be made public. Yes, I would like a follow-up story. (laughs) The sad thing is that bats are incredibly endangered in North America right now. There's been a a disease that's been completely wiping them out. And and so if if you see a bat, (laughs) don't kill it. (laughs) Call it sort of a humane removal service they're very endangered yes yes and they and they are very important to the ecosystem yes we can can talk just a little plug for bats right (laughs) it was sort of an anti-bat story although of course no one wants rabies we want everyone to be healthy but yes bats are good too bats are bats are good just don't touch them yes uh so that is it for today thank you all for listening if you enjoyed the podcast you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast we'd also appreciate it if you left us a review that will help other people find us too also as usual you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Alice Olstein. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Kennan. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.